Shut up and sit down. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. A guy like me should never be allowed to get in here in the first place. I know that. Either I'm dead right or I'm crazy. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. There's only one person in the world who decides what I'm going to do, and that's me. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Strip the beta cake. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Kevin King Show. I am joined again by my longtime friend, Matthew Oakley, who is a podcaster and writer, does some awesome things over at the Grayland Report. Um, he is involved with a handful of other podcasts as well, has done some writing on Tavern Voices, um, as well as Intrepid Magazine, and I think he's got uh, great thoughts scattered all over the vast, vastness of the internet. I, uh, it's good to have you with you uh, here with us, Matt. How are you? How have you been? Oh, great! It's great to be here again. Um, I, I've been looking forward to it since the last time we did this because I haven't been doing much in the way of a uh, uh, political podcasting here lately, and I, I've been jonesing. You know, I forget that there is podcasting that is not political. So I'm glad that you remind me of that. Yeah, I, I need to do less of the stuff that's not political, I feel like. And I also feel like I need to, to get on writing more. I think I may have some some new articles for Tavern Voices here soon. So I'll have to send those your way. Hey, man, I'm looking forward to that because I have um, I've just not been writing like I used to. I think um, grad school has, has sucked it out of me, <laughs> but I need to. I have all these thoughts. They just don't go anywhere. Yeah, I know the feeling. I just, uh, you know, it has to, it feels like a kick in the gut sometimes. And that's the only time I really get down to it anymore is, is when it really just hurts. So, <laughs> and I have to get it out. So it's a fury that, that wells up. <laughs> well, I know for a fact that your last piece on, um, on, uh, what is the, the fury? Was it fire and fury or whatever? Yeah. yeah. Wolf's book is um, has, is still getting a lot of hits. I mean, I, I think people need to find out what's going on out there. Well, I tell you, it's um, I, I actually spoke to to someone who said this was my most biased uh, article that I've I've ever read. <laughs> and I say, you know, it, it it's kind of intended as a book review, so I don't I'm not totally dissuaded by that that criticism. But the thing is, is it's an atrocious book. I, I mean. I don't like Trump any more than the next person. I can assure a hundred percent of the listeners out there of that, but to basically libel or slanderize the man by making up nonsensical stories is, you know, just, it's a, a, a crutch. It feels like, you know, here, how well, it's, it's not like there's a shortage of, of good stuff to report on him. You know, you don't really have to make up too much. I, I know, you know, you, if you want to, really make him look insane just print his twitter feed or something uh, you don't have to make stuff up so it's a poorly written bu book by a guy who was uh you know employed by the hollywood reporter for a long time so how in the hell he got access to the west wing for that long is that that's the real story to me i want to know why that was a good idea 
we'll maybe we'll get the uh, the behind the scenes uh, version of that sometime. Um, but it's it's funny that you talk about that being your um, most unbiased article, perhaps that you've ever written. When my question is, um, you know, we talk a lot about media, you and I, off off the podcast, and then last time our entire episode was about the modern media, and I really started to think since the last time we talked about whether or not media can actually be unbiased. Like, is is that even a possibility? The the golden age of television media that we all recall of, uh, you know, Tom Brokaw, was it really ever unbiased or is everything just hyper biased these days? See, I, and you know, I think a lot of people do draw kind of a line of distinction in the sand. They say people used to editorialize. It came with kind of a disclaimer before you know, they said anything. Now it's just all editorializing. And that's what has kind of usurped the power of, you know, honest journalism. And I, to some extent, I agree. But really, I, I mean, one of my heroes, one of your heroes, Edward R. Murrow, you can't tell me he was unbiased on the McCarthy issue. You can't tell me that, uh, um, you know, uh, journalists were unbiased on the Vietnam War issue as they called attention, the American public's attention to the atrocities that were going on overseas. These weren't unbiased reportings, but there, I, I will concede there is a difference between what goes on today and the 24 hour news cycle. And I think part of that is because it is a, a 24 hour news cycle. And B, there is something I think about, uh, the the kind of corporatization of the 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 press basically uh there's a really interesting book out there for anybody who wants to read about news really wants to get into it it's called uh news is a verb by pete hamill and uh it's a, a great little book but he talks about how uh owners of newspapers owners of, of media outlets news outlets specifically used to expect to lose money there you know, it's more of a trophy buy than anything, right? Now people expect it to be a Fox News, a CNN, an MSNBC, a multi-billion-dollar enterprise, and so when it isn't that, they have to find ways to make it that. So that that's one of the the biggest problems I see currently. Yeah, I mean, I will completely uh, agree with that point that I think it is, I mean, you have to make money to stay afloat. So in order to make money, you kind of have to give the people what what they want to attract them to then get the advertisers. So you're sort of chasing your tail, um, so to speak. I just, I just wonder if we have come such, and, and what made me think about this more was watching the, the Post, the new Washington Post uh, movie. And even in the movie, they talk a little bit about how, you know, would I have done this? This has been Bradley talking. Would I have done this if this was JFK and not Nixon in the White House? I thought that was a really good aspect uh, element of that movie where Tom Hanks realizes that about himself. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it and it, and I look back at the important things that happen and you look at the Monica Lewinsky scandal and the media kind of really dropped the ball on that. You look at president Obama spying on journalists and, um, you know, t tapping the phone lines of New York times reporters. And even that didn't really 
gear things up. And so I'm wondering what what can you do to actually have an, an entity that will be fair no matter who is in in power? Um, well, and that's the thing. That's the hard thing. It's such a multi-layered issue. And I'm sure you've read, uh, and many out there would do well to read as well, uh, Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky. It's one of the most definitive uh, books on the subject, the political econ- economy of the mass media. You know, Chomsky's brilliant in every regard, but I'd say this is kind of his opus. So I, I'd recommend anybody getting it. But in it, he lays out uh, the five filters of editorial bias, is what he calls them. And he says every real you know, media outlet has these, just to varying degrees. And the thing is, is a journalist on the air can be biased without any intent of bias. It can be the intent, uh, intent of the actual corporation, the owners, CEOs, news directors, things like that, people who are beholden to the actual advertisers instead of the face you see on the evening news. So I feel like that's something to kind of put out there as well. Anchors aren't always responsible for the content that goes on their shows. They are kind of patsies at times. Uh, you no, know, I, I think that you're completely, completely onto it there. And that's where I've often wondered whether or not that is it better for a news agency to say, hey, here's our bias. We are conservative leaning. Here's where we're coming from. Here's the side of the story we're presenting you with and take it out how it is. Or, you know, I feel like for so long we were we were given here's the nightly news. Here is just the news as it is. And just by very definition of what you decide to talk about, which interviews you decide to post in a short amount of time is all inherently biased. Yeah. And there, there's, uh, again, bias is a, a deep issue. It doesn't just come back to somebody's political leanings. You know, uh, so these five filters, if you want to take these five filters, I think it might be a really good kind of conversation starter. The first one he puts forth is size, ownership, and profit orientation. And the, that means that the dominant mass media outlets are large companies operated for profit, and therefore they must cater to the financial interests of the owners, who are usually corporations and controlling investors. The size of a media company is a consequence of the investment capital required for mass communications technology required to reach a mass audience of viewers, listeners, or readers. So we kind of hit on that one first and already. And that's the first filter of editorial bias. But the second one is the advertising license to do business. So since the majority of revenue of major media outlets derives from advertising, not from sales or subscriptions, advertisers have acquired a de facto licensing authority. And media outlets are not commercially viable without the support of advertisers. So news media must therefore cater to the political prejudices and economic desires of their advertisers. And that has weakened the working class press, for instance, and helped uh, explain the attrition in the number of newspapers over the years. Well, I think you see that boldly. Um, anytime some major controversy happens, you, say, you, you hear, well, so-and-so pulled off of the Rush Limbaugh show, for instance, or such-and-such advertiser is pulling off of Fox News or MSNBC. Um, so I think they do have a certain, a, a large amount of power. Oh, absolutely. And, and you, you have to wonder to, to what degree 
the, <laughs> I mean, we, we look at lobbying and kind of corporate consolidation and these things, uh, and I think you can tie all of these five points together very easily. And this kind of hits, I think, both on the first and second one. We, we have seen a growing culture of corporate consolidation. Um, the, the, I, I, it astounds me that we actually have antitrust laws in this nation. We just never use them, apparently. But the, these kind of you know, cornering of the market in certain areas, you, you see when, when we talk about the weakened working class press, for example, and we see CNN, we see MSNBC, and we see Fox – there's no startup that is is going out there. There may be an you know YouTube channel or something like that. Nobody is matching what these people are doing. I think the the newest one would be what maybe Al Jazeera. I don't know that that might be the most recent. I think right. Oh yeah, for sure. But I mean, even they don't have the clout that's anywhere near these major communications. And you have you know, God forbid here here in. Our our hometown, we have the the Asheville Citizen Times. They're not competing with the New York Times. They're not competing with the Washington Post. It takes a lot of capital, and you know nobody has that kind of money just on hand. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not one of those things where well, I went out and had a media acquisition today for three billion dollars. Nobody just has that money ready to spend and just say, you know, go for it, do what you guys want. I believe in what you're, you're going to do. Why, why don't you think that the insurgence of the internet, which is really is, is a unprecedented amount of power to the people in a way where you don't have to have oil barrels, uh, I'm sorry, ink barrels and, and paper to get information out anymore. Literally anyone can tell their story. And we see the bad side of that with, with the, the influx of fake news. But I feel like we're also at a point where we should be able to see better information than ever before, because it's not being controlled by advertisers and editors and, um, and owners. It's just people digging up information and, and telling their story. Do you think that's a negative that 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 isn't very prevalent or that it that there aren't those safeguards in place i i don't think there are safeguards in place i don't think that the citizen journalist and, and you know what for all intents and purposes that's what i attempt to be and that's what a lot of us intend to be in these smaller websites startups and podcasts and things like that but i i think i trust myself more than i trust you know Joe Blow on the street, and I've seen a lot of absolutely horrible reporting. I've seen people put other people at risk with the the Citizen Journalist Brigade. So, a, I don't think they're responsible enough to take up the mantle yet. They don't, uh, you know, the average citizen journalist just sees what's wrong in the world and tries to engage it, but I, you know, it, it doesn't have the same. I don't want to say prestige, but uh, you know. System, I guess, system of checks and balances uh, that that the main quote unquote mainstream press does. So I think that's a big problem. But also, I think part of the problem here is actually it does tie back around in another one of the five filters of editorial bias that Chomsky wrote about, and it is the third one called sourcing mass media news. Uh, they argue in the book that 
the large bureaucracies of the powerful subsidize the mass media and gain special access to the news by their contribution to reducing the media's costs of acquiring or producing news. The large entities that provide this subsidy become routine news sources and have privileged access to the gates. Non-routine sources must struggle for access and will be ignored by arbitrary decision of the gatekeepers. That means that, you know, no citizen journalist is going to get on the White House press staff. It's just not done that way because they don't have that system of corporatism, that corporate consolidation. And, you know, as much as I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, the money to grease the palms of the politicians that allow them to get immediate access to the news that's affecting the nation. No, they don't have the ability to do that. And that makes me, I think this is what puts us all in a, in a tough spot because people like you and I, we do give the media benefit of the doubt. We see the benefit in the, um, in the institutions like the New York Times and what they have done and what they continue to do by financing actual journalism and sending people to cover things that need to be covered while at the same time kind of completely dropping the ball and letting us down when the news headlines are how Donald Trump cooks his steak. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But you, you do look, have to look at Adam as an institution and you brought it up uh, the post, the movie, anybody who hasn't seen it, I think it's one of the better films of the past year. And, and I think it's a really important story. The release of the Pentagon papers. I mean, for God's sake, you're, you're in what, what, how many documents, a couple thousand documents, right? That the New York Times or the Washington Post has, New York Times releases it, gets, you know, almost shut down by the federal government, and the Washington Post stands there in the face of being shut down, being the smallest newspaper in their category, and still saying we have to do this because it's an important thing to do. That I don't think, forgive me, I don't think that people have that kind of guts these days to to do what is right in the face of everything negative in front of you. No, I, I don't. And I think that the frustrating part to loop back to what I said a little bit earlier is that, unfortunately, I don't see this, this brave foot forward in different political circumstances. And I think that the beautiful thing about the First Amendment is its truth to power to anyone in power. And I would love to see more journalism outlets taking that kind of stand because I think that it is a very important, um, you know, separator that we have that many other countries historically and even in modern day do not have the privilege of just saying what we want to say and to have uh, the ability to print things that are contrary to those who do uh, that are in charge of the military. It's a very powerful thing. It absolutely is. I mean, as we discussed in the, the last you know, episode, the fourth estate, it's called that for a reason. We are the, the journalists are the, the, the fourth area of government. Okay. We, it is a system. It, it, this inc- is included in the system of checks and balances that exists in our nation. And it's becoming an institutional failure. I, I mean, Absolutely, hands down, we are failing when we, as you brought up, Obama starts wiretapping the press. Nobody covers it, right? And then, you know, 
Trump does something really, uh, just for instance, I, I'm just making up a, a situation here, does something horrible on an international scale, but like you said, they cover his stake or they cover an affair with a porn star. George W. Bush sends us into war without being really prepared for what we would later understand to be a almost unwinnable war. And they failed at that, I, I think, quite amply. And then you have, you know, the multiple institutional failures of journalists during the Clinton administration. And, and I think one of the biggest things in, or, or one of the biggest indicators I've seen recently to this end in, you know, institutional failure was a, a piece. I want to say it was a, an op-ed in the, the Washington Post that was called I Stand with Juanita. I, th- I, I should be able to find it here. And so it's uh, in reference to Juanita Broderick. And Juanita Broderick had claimed that she was uh, a rape victim of uh, George, or excuse me, Bill Clinton in the, uh, in, during his presidency. And everybody brushed her off and said, you know, Clinton wouldn't do that. And the news media attacked her. Hillary Clinton attacked her. The, the White House attacked her. Everybody attacked this woman who had a credible claim that she was raped. Now, 20 years after the fact, you have this op-ed in the Washington Post that was the most fatuous thing I've read in so long. It says, I stand with Juanita. I stand with the Me Too movement. But in all fairness... The reason we didn't believe her back then is it really sounded like a a conservative conspiracy. That's your excuse. That's your excuse for not for failing to follow up on on a rape victim of the president of the United States. Your excuse is, well, it just it didn't sound right. That's nonsense. That is no excuse. No, it's 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 no excuse at all. And there was another um, piece that. I, I don't remember where it was. And it was talking about how um, that the, the left completely failed what would become the Me Too movement during Clinton's time and how it opened the door to this because they made excuses. They attacked all of the people that came forward. They circled the wagons and protected him when they never should have done that. This should have become a big issue 20 years ago. But instead, it took until now to get there. Um and even even now, though, I, th- I think the interesting part is the media is not, um, you know, they're dismissing these people. But you have, I mean, Charlie Rose, for instance, uh, right. Matt Lauer, you had these people propped up that never should have been there in the first place. And it really goes to the fact that that most of modern media is about power. And I think that's why they don't attack anyone else with power, because they want the proximity to power. Yeah, absolutely. I would not disagree with you in the slightest there. Well, I'm glad that's, that's why I like to have yeah, you around, you know, uh, cause I'm just the yes man. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. I, I did. Right. Let's find something to disagree yeah, on. Right. Fast. There's been way too much agreement. So yeah, far. I'm sure, you know, with all the recent news, we could find something, you know, guns, uh, <laughs> that's the hot issue right now. So hopefully I'll, I'll have you an article about guns here soon and everyone can yell at me about it. Hey, as long as it's less biased than the last one, you yeah, know? I'll try. I'll try. So get get um get me up on the uh, the fourth and fifth uh, pillars that Chomsky talked about. All right, let's yeah. So 
the the fourth one is flack and the enforcers. Flack refers to a negative response to a media statement or program, for instance, letters or complaints, emails, that kind of thing. Flack can be expensive to the media, either due to a loss of advertising revenue or due to the cost of legal defense or defense of the media outlet's public image. So basically, flack is any kind of uproar caused by a, a story they report. And flack can be organized by powerful private influence groups or like think tanks. And the prospect of eliciting flack can be a deterrent to reporting certain kinds of facts or opinions. So therefore, we avoid the hard thing because it might cause issues for us financially somewhere down the line. Which is depressing, but uh, that we can see easily where that would happen, and that kind of does fall into what you were just talking about with Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose. A- absolutely, and I can say for a fact that I have worked places previously where um, an editorial has been edited um, or flat out not printed because – it would uh, potentially upset an elected official who is also an advertiser. Um, I think the statute of limitations is up on that, but I still won't go into the specifics. And it's extremely frustrating from someone on the other side, but you understand that if, if they can't pay the bills, then you don't have a job. So what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, uh, to some degree, I don't like it and I don't, really ever want it to happen but to some degree i understand it a little bit more to an advertiser like pepsi or coca-cola than i do to an elected official or somebody running for elected office you know bowing to that demand to to kind of skirt the issue for somebody who advertises for you i think that is probably the worst you know example of doing so uh, but ben- I, I completely agree yeah bending to flack that's that's what i meant to say so the, the fifth and final filter of editorial bias is when the book was originally written, and that was in the uh, 1988, I think, uh, the, the filter was anti-communism. But in a later edition, he switched out anti-communism for the war on terror. And so Chomsky argues that since the end of the Cold War, anti-communism, or in this case, war on terror is a major social control mechanism. So if, if all else fails to, (laughs) to, to insulate you from, from, you know, the, the media or excuse me, from losing advertisers, from making people angry in general, be that viewership or advertisers or corporate, you know, what is it? The Thompson call them greed heads, corporate greed heads. Um, you use the war on terror as a social control mechanism. You scare the hell out of them with the unseen enemy somewhere overseas. And that just works to kind of redirect their attention in some capacity or another. Well, that's an interesting point because I'm thinking about how around nine 11, obviously there was a big social element to this, but you have a big scare up of, of terrorism and the, the unknown elements of it. And it was a, it was a big news story yet. I think even today there is still a big element of terrorism in the world. There is still a war uh, raging in the middle East and it's not being really duly covered by the media. So I'm kind of wondering wh- where they sit on that. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, is it's not covered when it's necessary, but yet, when 
something else needs to be ignored. I, I and I think a lot of people realize this. You know, it, it felt like it used to be kind of a crackpot conspiracy theorist point of view that they were redirecting our attention to in, in some fashion or another. But that really is what they do sometimes. I'm not going to say all the time. I'm not going to say every piece of news that comes across your television or radio or newspaper is a, you know, is some sort of, of mind control put out by the, the globalist elite. I'm not Alex Jones, for God's sake. So, but some of it is. This would be way more entertaining if you were Alex Jones, <laughs> but continue. I just got to talk like this the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta take a lot of a lot of uh, testosterone pills or something and just scream a lot and throw my chair, something yeah. like that. But you did, uh, and this is actually really interesting. So I'd like to get your opinion on this because I I despise Alex Jones and what he does. I think he's incredibly dangerous and he spreads such, you know, I I, I don't want to say fake news, but fake news. I mean, he lies consistently. He stretches the truth. You know, he comes up with nonsensical conspiracy theories about, you know, uh, crisis actors at mass shootings and the government using uh, uh, chemicals in the water to turn frogs gay. It's it's just the most schizophrenic nonsense I've ever heard. However, there was a, a story this week that they were shutting down his YouTube channel. Had you seen this? I, I, I've seen it float around, I think, a couple of times, actually. So so what do you I, – I assume you're generally on the same page as me on the, the Alex Jones issue, right, uh, as far as the content he carries. Yeah, that would be affirmative. Yeah, but despite my disposition towards him, I don't think that limiting his access to freedom of speech because of what, it, what he espouses – is in line with the the ideology of either freedom of the press or freedom of speech. Well, you know, I, this brings up an interesting concept because we've been talking about how media is changing and how we consume it is vastly different than it was even five years ago. And since we are now consuming media through our phones, Facebook, YouTube channels, um, podcasts through iTunes, I, how do we – how do we regulate corporations to enforce the First Amendment? Because it doesn't apply to them. If YouTube says we don't want you to have a channel, they can just turn it off. If 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 all of a sudden we're receiving all of our media through Facebook, for instance, and Facebook says we're not going to allow these certain viewpoints to circulate through, which we already know that they're doing that through the yeah. um, what's trending links to the side. What what is what does that do to our democracy when we're no longer getting media over the quote free airwaves of of the the big three stations like we used to? Well, and let us not forget that both Google and Facebook have been found to carry biased articles, biased towards one viewpoint. Oh, so you are actually having search engines that manipulate search results based on a biased uh, kind of outlook. You know, uh, algorithm, I guess, would be the, the proper term. So that is a scary thing. I think that this is the first time we've really faced, you know, it, it kind of, I think, gets touched on a little bit in the those five points and from manufacturing consent with, you know, here we have X amount of sponsors that are going to lean more towards traditionally liberal ideology, specifically with Google and Facebook 
Um, so let's keep them happy. Let's keep our viewership happy. And let's just make ourselves happy because that's the way you know Silicon Valley runs itself. So that's a horrifying thing that all of our news is now going through a filter. It may not be a governmental filter, but it is still a, a very fine lens that is by a, a very specific group of people. It's, it's really startling to me. I mean, to think about it, I don't think it frightens me from the corporate power perspective. I'm not afraid of Google and Facebook controlling the world. I think that um, what I'm afraid of is the cronyism is that if they allow the government to say, cr- uh, you know, treat them like media outlets where they then are allowed to be kind of the only players in town, I think as long as you keep things free and open, you will always have the the pirate stations that are getting the information out there it, it, that you will have people pushing against, even if they become the big conglomerates, because I'm not so sure that. ABC in the nineties is any different than Google now. I mean, that kind of goes back right. to what we were. Go ahead. See, I would, I, I, you want to disagree. I'll disagree with you on that. I, I will stand my ground on Go this and it. say that because, because Google holds the key to getting to that pirate station, it, it is vastly different would be my position on that. You know, you, you, if you're searching for something that, you know, would typically produce a, a, result with uh, say that that kind of you know out there alternative radio uh or alternative podcasts these these alternative viewpoints if you have to go to google to find it and google has some sort of you know opposition towards the ideology contained therein then you're you're going to have a hard time finding it so abc wasn't the one you went to to you know people didn't used to call up abc and say who should i read who should i listen to so that would be the the big difference i would say there well i will say at the same time i I don't disagree with your point because i think it's very dangerous i'm not saying it's not um but i do think that at the same time you have say abc nbc cbs choosing what they're reporting on, choosing what they want people to find out about. I mean, they're editorializing, whether that's positive or negative, it could go either way. And that's all you had access to. I mean, you didn't have the internet in the early nineties. You didn't have, um, you know, you had a handful of radio stations and TV stations and that was it. And they were very similar. Yeah. And I think we generally agree, I guess it's just a matter of, I guess, Availability versus access, something like it. something like that, I guess. No, I, I, I agree with that completely because it's um, I think it goes back to the Internet is a is a very positive thing. It allows more citizen journalism. We find out about a lot of things through Twitter than we do mainstream media. But at the same time, it's dangerous where anyone can tweet anything and then it is now perceived as legitimate and it may very well ruin someone's life or career. Oh yeah. You look at the, the Boston bombing, you know, most famously, I think that uh, that's an instance of citizen journalists, absolutely ruining people's lives. You know, it's amazing how bad we screwed the pooch on that one and, you know, hurt families, you know, put people's lives at risk. Because we were willing to put out some nonsensical conspiracy theory that somebody who was involved and had was not involved and had 
no affiliation with the people who were involved was somehow, you know, the, the person to be looking at and people's families got put their, their lives got put at risk because citizen journalists did not have the proper tools available to them. Yeah, I completely agree. And that kind of brings me, I'll, I'll frame this as kind of the last question I will throw your way is we, we've talked about whether or not media can inherently be unbiased. I mean, I think that we both agree that there's always an element of bias and it's sort of varying degrees. But I look back at, um, in contrast to what we're talking about now with Twitter and anybody can put up a WordPress blog and become a journalist, the beginnings of American journalism were biased uh, propaganda pamphlets by uh, Adams and Jefferson and um, Franklin. So do you think we've changed or are we just in another cycle? I honestly think we're just in another cycle, to be completely honest. Like I said, you know, you have Murrow, you have the 60s with Vietnam, you have modern day, as you said, you, at the you know start of the country, we had propaganda going out as media. You have um, the, the instance of Mark Twain. You know, he was run out of, uh, was, it, was it San Francisco, I believe, for reporting false stories. You know, this is not a new narrative, this, this quote-unquote fake news, you know, phenomenon. So I, I think it's just kind of a cycle, and, and we're seeing it, you know, repeat itself in kind of a new way at this point. That would be the big distinction. Well, I'm glad that you also agree with me on that because that makes this very, very easy. But I, I will say that in, in all seriousness, I agree that it's just another um, another cycle. And I think that maybe the difference is, and I don't know because I wasn't around in Vietnam nor in the uh, you know 1760s either, that I think it's up to the individual consumption. And I am just perhaps afraid of more than I should be that people are not prepared for what they're consuming. I agree. <laughs> we, we've come to a lot of common ground on this episode. I think. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm glad for that. We will. Um, I'm sure that before long, there will be plenty more um, to talk about because um, the media is, is quickly changing. And I think that with the, uh, the Trump administration, we've seen a shift back um, to a little bit different coverage than we saw the, the previous eight years. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. I do too. And, you know, I got to say, we can't let it be this long before we do another episode. And dare I even tease an audience before I've even consulted you on this matter. I think we got to do guns next. I'm jonesing to, to get this, this debate out there. I, I'm, you know, it's it's been filling my kind of news feed and head for so for the past couple of weeks. I, I just can't get the the gun debate off my mind, and I think this would be a good outlet to to have it on. Hey, man, I'm I'm absolutely game, and that will come right on the heels of the episode prior to this is about um, whether or not guns are. Um, you know, the problem and, are, and is the second amendment still relevant? So there's going to be a little bit of a discussion. So I'll let you listen to that. Yeah. And then, um, you know, in here in a, in a week or two, we'll circle back and I would love to have that discussion because um, there's just such a wide spectrum on it. On the main Tavern Voices podcast, Tyler Crowley and I talked about it a little bit a couple of weeks ago as well. So um, I'm, I'm game, man. I'm definitely Yeah, sounds game. good to me. Right on. Well, I am Kevin King and 
joined with me today was Matthew Oakley, and I will post all of his links and bio in the show notes. But uh, thank you for joining me, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me again. Man.